I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Our guest today has had an unusual journey, beginning after graduating from the University of Colorado, running a bar in Chicago, then getting his MBA from the University of Michigan. Tom Garfinkel, who is the vice chairman, CEO, and president of the Miami Dolphins and Hard Rock Cafe, has had unique experiences whether it's been in auto racing, baseball, or now with the Miami Dolphins. He's one of the brightest, most visionary executives in professional sports. He's been able to, along with his owner, Steve Ross, craft a championship environment and culture with the Miami Dolphins. Under Tom's leadership, the Miami Dolphins are one of the few NFL organizations that have both an African-American head coach and African-American general manager. His commitment to diversity is a hallmark of what both Steve Ross and Tom Garfinkel value. He's added extra events to raise more revenue and more exposure. And he's always looking for the next strategic advantage that he can build into his organization. Our guest, Tom Garfinkel. Today's guest, one of the brightest, if not the brightest, in professional sports. He's a leading-edge thinker in terms of how he approaches problems. He's got unique sets of experiences, having been classically trained. And we're going to probe his background and understand how he's been able to uh, take the Miami Dolphins to a new level since he's arrived. So we welcome Tom Garfinkel. Tom, thanks for uh, joining us today. Thank you, Jed. It's great to be here with you. So talk about how you got involved in sports to begin with. You went went to Colorado, you got an MBA at the University of Michigan, and then you went into some marketing, kind of Miller and, and the like. So you got some classical training. Most people in sports aren't trained the way you were trained. Yeah. So, you know, going back to when I was at Colorado, I, I, I thought I wanted to work in sports at the time. I didn't really know what that meant and uh, didn't know anybody, you know, to kind of get my foot in the door. So when I graduated, I moved to Chicago with a couple of friends. I'd never been there before, packed up everything I owned into my car and, uh, and drove to Chicago, slept on a friend's couch for a while, got a job at, at a bar called uh, High Tops next to Wrigley Field, uh, checking IDs. And uh, just trying to be close to it, trying to be next to Wrigley Field, trying to learn, went on informational interviews. About a year into it, I went to uh, dinner with my dad one night who was in town and said, uh, he said, how's the job search going? I said, well, I can't get anybody to hire me. He said, uh, how are things going at the bars? I said, it's, you know, it's fine. I can pay my rent. I got a place with a couple guys now. It's a fun place to work. He said, well, is there anything you do differently uh, if you ran the place? And I said, well, 
yeah, I'd change this. I'd do this. I have this idea, that idea. He said, well, those are good ideas. Why don't you share those with the manager or the owner of the bar? I said, I don't want to work in the bar business forever. I want to work in sports. And he said, you know, it doesn't matter as long as you're learning and growing. That's all that matters. And so I, I went home. I thought about that. The next day I went in and talked to the owner of the bar, shared my ideas. And so a couple of years later, uh, I was now, you know, effectively running three bars, one of which I had opened. So now I'm hiring, firing people, doing marketing plans, negotiating deals, like basically running a business. And uh, that eventually led to, you know, a job with Miller Brewing Company, with, which, you know, led to, uh, got promoted there a couple of times. And then that led to a job going to Texaco to manage their motorsports sponsorships, got promoted there a couple of times. And so you know, it was great advice as long as I was learning and growing. And uh, uh, and then I ended up at the University of Michigan to get my MBA and, and things kind of went from there. And so I've got a big painting on my office here. Who convinced you on that, Tom, in order to make that move and go back to school? Had that happen? Well, that was really a guy named John Nielsen at, at Miller Brewing Company. He was a mentor of mine who, who had gone to Kellogg to get his MBA. And he had encouraged me and said, uh, have you ever thought about going back to school? And I said, no. And, and so... I actually got into Wake Forest to get my MBA and Miller was going to pay for it. And then Texaco, someone I knew from Texaco, had called and said, you want to move to New York and come run motorsport sponsorships? And it was a little more in sports. It was a little more, I mean, when I was in Miller, I was in North Carolina. So it was around auto racing and the Carolina Panthers at the time had just started. And But this was a chance to move to New York City and really manage sports sponsorships for a large company. And And so I ended up leaving and going to New York and promised myself at the time, I really want to go to Kellogg or Michigan and get my MBA and I'm going to study for the GMAT for the next, you know, year and a half, go take this job and then try to go, go to one of those top schools. And so uh, I did that. I got promoted to Texaco a couple of times and then ended up getting into Michigan and, and going to Michigan to get my MBA. So how does the next job happen? Well, coming out of Michigan, you know, there's a process for, you know, people, companies coming to recruit. MBA students, but they all, they recruit all the students at the same level. I was a little older. I had a little bit of a bigger job going into school than sort of the average student at the time. And so for me, um, uh, Chip Ganassi, you know, had called and, you know, we knew each other from when I was with Texaco and I was graduating and I was set to get married and move to San Francisco and go work for this consulting firm. And then Chip said, just come down in the Indy 500. This was May of 01. And I went, I drove down from Ann Arbor to, uh, to Indianapolis, went to the Indy 500. Uh, he put me in a room with uh, the CEO, president, CFO at Target, who was his biggest sponsor at the time, and kind of did the presumptive close, like, hey, this is my new guy, you know. And by the end of it, I went home and, and talked to my fiance, and, uh, who had worked in auto racing. We met in the winter circle, ironically, here in, in Miami. She worked for Newman Haas Racing when I was with Texaco. And so she kind of knew what it meant. And... Uh, you know, I ended up taking the job with, with Chip and moving to Pittsburgh. So what was that job and how did you grow in that in that role? What did you inherit? Yeah, it started out, it was like a, a VP of sponsorships role, working with the sponsors and, and really growing revenue. Uh, ended up really being a much bigger role where it was really sort of managing the business. But I think, uh, you know, we we're about a probably $35 million company at the time. We grew to be about maybe $120 million in revenue by the time I left about five years later. But it was a great experience at that time. I, I had exposure, you know, uh, Chip was, uh, you know, it was a small business. It was growing, you know, Chip's very entrepreneurial. I learned things from him. But I also had access to, 
all these senior executives at Target in particular, other companies as well, Chevron. But, but really, I got my kind of MBA after my MBA from Bob Ulrich and, and uh, you know, the head of HR, the head of IT, the head of marketing, all these people at Target who I became very close friends with and, and were very generous uh, mentors of mine. It was a great experience. So they are located in Minnesota and you were in Pittsburgh. So you must have had a, you must have traveled up there or some in order to get that close uh, mentoring. Yeah, I spent a lot of time with them uh, in Minneapolis as well as just, you know, on race weekends. So, um, you know, I traveled a lot at the time. I think I traveled 38 weekends a year and, you know, probably worked from seven in the morning to eight at night during the week every day. So um, it was a it was a busy time for sure, but a, a great time in my growth and development. Well, you learned how to work, it sounds like. I mean, you developed a work ethic, although probably in the bar, that was where the real work ethic was. Yeah, the work ethic was always there. Uh, I, I kind of That goes back to just sort of the uh, example my dad set for me and sort of high school football and all, all those things, just the work ethic part. But, you know, that was just really driven by uh, the desire to learn and grow and, and develop. And, and uh, so that, I guess that part was kind of always there. So how does that next move happen? Funny enough, you know, it, it became, you know, this always be learning concept in my mind. I always felt like if something became Groundhog Day and I didn't feel like I was really learning anymore, it was time to move on. I think personally, too, you know, my wife was fantastic in understanding that I was gone all the time. But at one point, you know, I came home and there was, you know, two little babies running around and, and I was almost never home. And she kind of looked at me like, this is getting hard, you know, and I said, give me a year and I'll fix it. And I think I think it was just kind of that time. I, I really enjoyed my time there, uh, but I'd gotten to a point where it, it was starting to feel it was just time to move on. And and so I did a bit of a non-traditional move. I had an opportunity to go to the Arizona Diamondbacks. And yeah, I went from kind of effectively running this 400-person company from a business standpoint and, and knowing a lot of people in auto racing um, to going to baseball and, and taking a very significant pay cut going some to, to the Diamondbacks and having basically no one report to me and knowing no one in baseball and just kind of believing in myself that I'd figure it out when I got there. And uh, What was your role? When I went, I was like SVP of strategy. So, right. you know, I kind of had no one reporting to me. That quickly grew into like a COO role where I was sort of running a, a very big part of the business, the revenue, the marketing, the HR, the IT, all that stuff. So, uh, and then we are able to, you know, make some cultural changes there, have some success at the Diamondbacks where we kind of turn around the business in a lot of ways and, you know, writing a strategic plan and then going out and executing on it and, and growing the revenue there. That was a great learning experience as well. How'd you get buy-in on your strategic plan? Here you come, nobody reporting to you, coming in with this title strategy. So how, how do you bring all that together? Well, I, I framed it up in a way that I don't think anybody had ever really framed it up before. I mean, I think the Diamondbacks, you know, um, had had some success. I mean, certainly they won the World Series in their, gosh, uh, one, two, three, like fourth year of existence. But they lost, you know, no one had kind of framed up the financial situation. So I actually wrote a, a presentation without the numbers and I handed it to the CFO and said, please fill in the blanks. And then sort of built this this story of, this narrative of like factually what had happened and where the organization sat. And the reality was they had lost uh, literally hundreds of millions of dollars in book income in, in the first eight years of existence. The year after they won the world series, I think they lost $80 million. So 
it was sort of framing that up and saying, you know, here's a different approach and here's how we have to approach it moving forward if we want to have success. And the ownership saw it, understood it, bought into it. And then I think things kind of took off from there. Chris, I think one of the partners ended up then going to the Padres and bringing you with him. He did, yeah. And that was about maybe two and a half years into it. Uh, he ended up going to the Padres. I went uh, to the Padres to be the president there uh, shortly thereafter. Now that was uh, who was that person that did that for you? Jeff Morad. Yeah, Jeff was uh, Jeff was the guy that kind of brought me to Arizona. I had met him through a guy named Mark Nelson, who was the president of Chevron. Mark and Jeff knew each other from Newport Beach. I knew Mark from racing. You know, from they were a big sponsor of ours. He was a great friend and mentor of mine, and and uh, he introduced me to Jeff. And you know, at the time we were doing the target, you know, when I got there, I think target was giving us 15 million a year or so. And when I left, I think it was upwards of $45 million a year or something. So, you know, Jeff heard those numbers and was kind of like blown away. And, and we started talking about me going to, to Arizona and the timing kind of worked out. So what do, what do you inherit in San Diego? Uh, San Diego was going through an ownership transition at the time, obviously with Jeff kind of buying the team, uh, they had just come they had some success as well. You know, they were pretty well run and, and everything else. Sandy Alderson was there and had done, you know, a good job. And, uh, but the transition, you know, through the transition, I think there was, you know, there was a time where the last year or two, you know, season ticket sales had plummeted and, and, uh, revenues had plummeted. And so sort of inherited a situation, you know, a bit of a challenging situation from that standpoint, we were, I don't know, 29th or 30th in, in Major League Payroll and baseball. You know, we had a couple of good young players, uh, not a lot of good prospects in the farm system and sort of a, you know, culturally a very uncertain culture because of some of the ownership transition. So really kind of trying to manage through that. So how did you take that and help rebuild it? Well, I think it started with, again, with uh, the, the, the executive team trying to build the right culture, trying to really frame up uh, similarly to Arizona. Here's the here's the, the factual you know, financial situation. And there was a bit of a PR situation with the fan base. I think the ballpark had been built. You know, Larry Lacchino really uh, did a tremendous job when he was there of, of getting that ballpark built. And it's a beautiful ballpark. And but at the time, there was a lot of public funding used to build that ballpark. And, and again, the narrative publicly was that the team hasn't delivered on what it promised, when in fact, the ballpark really over-delivered on what it promised. I think if you look at, all you need to do is look at a photograph of that area in 2002 and look at a photograph of it in 2012. And it completely, the ballpark itself completely transformed that whole district, you know, from a real estate standpoint alone. So, uh, but that hadn't really been framed up publicly. But it really started with just like anything else. It starts with people, uh, you know, getting the right people in place, getting the right process in place, and then just you know building a culture and driving to results. Now, did you get involved on the baseball side at all, or were you just strictly on the business side? No, I was really on the business side. I mean, uh, I worked with Jeff on you know hiring Jed Hoyer and getting him in there as a general manager, and then uh, you know getting that set up. But again, certainly those decisions, you know, who we were drafting and what we were doing and, and you know, the, the general manager was making those decisions and as he should. And Jed and I had a great relationship, still friends to this day. And so, yeah, we worked together very collaboratively, but no, I didn't run the baseball side. So you're a former football player. Now you have the chance to go to the Dolphins. How do you respond to that? And, you know, what's that like coming in this organization and 
you've transformed it. I mean, the things you've done with the stadium, with bringing on new uh, events, and you've just really taken it and uh, changed the whole image. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think, you know, the challenge in San Diego was really there was three owners in four and a half years I was there. You know, Jeff came in with his group, uh, sort of with John Moore still as the controlling owner, but Jeff really controlling things. And then and John kind of came back in the picture and was controlling things. And then and, and, we, and we put the team up for sale and sold it to, you know, Ron Fowler and, and Peter Seiler. So we got to go through that process of selling the team. And then Ron and Peter came in and you know, so th there were some challenges over four and a half years, you know, just having that kind of trans that kind of uncertainty and change, you know, that much change in that shorter period of time. And I think when the new owners came in, you know, it was just time. It was just time for me to step aside at that point. And, you know, not really being sure what I was going to do next. I had known Stephen Ross for a few years and and I think, you know, had, had gone out and met with him and, and really was at a point in my career where I, where I wanted to. Whatever my next job was, I looked at it as somewhere I wanted to be for a long time, hopefully. So I, I was taking that decision very seriously in terms of uh, not jumping at the first thing and, and wanting it to be the right thing with the right people. And just knowing Steve, uh, you know, he certainly was someone I, I had a lot of respect and admiration for, kind of went through that process and, you know, came into a situation. Again, we were probably the we were. I think the only team in the NFL at the time with a negative EBITDA, uh, we had a half half empty stadium and for games and we were, we, we had no, and there had been plans for a renovation, but there had been no solution on how to fund it. But it really came down to going, sitting down with Steve in the interview process and just saying, listen, like I put together a deck. They didn't ask me to, I just put it together and said, this is what I would do. And this is what I do the first 90 days. This is what I would do the first year. And if you let me do this, I know I can do this. Here's what's going to happen. And so it was really about framing up the expectations in the interview process of like having the autonomy and the resources to kind of be myself, which uh, I didn't feel like I had really in San Diego in spite of, you know, what I would consider, you know, great people uh, as owners and everything else. It wasn't that. It was just, you know, I, I just didn't have, you know, sort of the, that autonomy and the resources that I have here to go to kind of have creative ideas, build things and, and, and do things. And, and Steve, you know, someone who has the capacity and willingness to invest in big ideas uh, allowed me to do that. And I think starting with a negative EBITDA and, 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 you know, growing that now to where we're probably went from 32nd in the league to, I don't know, somewhere in the top 10, I, I would think, but um, in EBITDA. So, you know, that was what was most important is, you know, I'll be accountable, I'll be communicative, I'll be collaborative, but there's a degree of autonomy and resources that you have to have to really be able to, do, to be accountable and deliver the results. Talk a little bit about Steve for our audience who may not know his background and the other fact that, you know, in many professional sports, the owner lives in town. And in this case, Steve doesn't live in town. So in terms of getting the alignment right and getting the communication right, first talk about his background and then how you work to to be able to build that alignment and the alignments changed during your tenure there and it's evolved. It has, you know, uh, like any relationship, I think over time relationships evolve. Steve and I always had a good relationship. I think there was uh, a lot of shared values and ideas and creativity. You know, he's a very out of the box thinker. Steve, you know, kind of self, you know, self-made didn't grow up with money and, but had an uncle who was very, 
uh, very wealthy. So he got to see what it looked like, but he didn't grow up wealthy. One of the hardest working, visionary, out of the box thinkers you know I've ever been around. Steve is now 81 years old, and I tell people often he's always looking forward about what he's going to do next. He doesn't look back. He doesn't. He's not someone that's telling you stories about all of his accomplishments. It's almost like he hasn't done anything in his life, which is incredible for all he's accomplished. He's always looking forward and talking about what he wants to do next, and that's inspiring to be around. He trusts you. He trusts his executives. Once you know. I had the autonomy and resources and produced results. And once those results were produced, there's more credibility over time. And, and the more things, you know, the more he got to see who I was and got to really know me and without intermediaries in the middle, kind of, you know, telling stories or clouding what it is, just got to see me for who I was. I think the closer we got uh, the first five years or so, I really had almost nothing to do with the football operations. Um, and even today, I don't have very much to do with it other than really sitting down with Steve a few years ago and saying, listen, you build your buildings, you know, you don't start with the bathroom on the third floor. You start with the foundation. It takes time to build these things. You can't just, you don't build them all in one year. And we can't be in win now mode in, in football and expect to have a Super Bowl winning team. You have to build a foundation first. We have to build it over time. We have to be strategic and thoughtful about it. And it starts with getting the right leadership in place. And, and having a plan and executing on that over time and building something over time. And that's when we went out and really put Chris in charge and, and, and hired Brian and had this, had this plan to really build something over time and that was deliberate and thoughtful and patient and strategic. And so that's what we've been doing. And, you know, Chris and Brian make those decisions, but they understand the plan that, that we're trying to we're do, we're trying to do and, and everyone's bought in everyone's collaborative everyone's communicative and now we're in you know what else what'll be year three and uh very excited about you know kind of the future of the football team and, and where brian and chris are taking it you've done a tremendous job of accumulating draft picks that had to be part of your strategy in terms of how you've been able to build a roster it was for sure uh, going in even before we hired brian sitting down with chris and with Brian in the interview process, like, you know, there's, I think that there's, uh, the league is to no fault of anybody. It just, you know, there's, there's a very there's a high degree of sense of urgency for, for today and, and not what's going to happen a year or two from now. And so the idea was, look, we've got to, we've got to almost start over, build this from scratch, have an ethos of who we want this team to be and the image of, of, of this coach we're going to hire and the kind of football he wants to play and the kind of players he wants to have. And so we've got to give him some autonomy to build the team the way he wants to with the general manager and Chris, who's very collaborative and wants to get players that that coach wants. So that's a collaborative process that they have together. Uh, but we're really building a, a team, you know, in, in Brian's uh, sense of football, how he wants to play football. And, and Brian and Chris are doing that. And that was what we wanted to do. Uh, a team that's, you know, uh, you know, mentally, physically tough, smart, instinctive football players that are, that are competitive people, that are great teammates. You know, those are the qualities that we wanted to look for in, in the kind of team we wanted to build. And Brian and Chris were bought into that and just kind of took that and ran with it. Uh, and they're doing a great job building that. So, you know, we're excited about kind of where that's headed. This is a very competitive league, a very difficult league uh, to win in, as you know, and, and uh, the margin it's such there's so much parity the margin is very small but that also means that you know small advantages if you can develop them can be meaningful so 
hopefully I, I really think, think we're on the right track. Excited about where we're at. Let's switch over to the business side in terms of what you inherited, the renovations you've done, and how you've really enhanced the fans, the social media, the faith, all the different aspects that you've brought from all your different sets of experiences. I mean, you've got this unbelievable facility host to the Super Bowl, going to have the college championship game there. So, I mean, you've you've been able to uh, really build something, at a destination point. Yeah, thank you. It was really, yeah, the, the vision was really to have a global entertainment destination, not just a football stadium. And I think that, uh, you know, we did with the renovation, you know, it was uh, trying to do things differently, trying to kind of create opportunities, trying to think like, what would I want if I was a consumer and think of different market segments and you know, reduce capacity a bit, created new luxury seating products, all kinds of different seating products at different price points, uh, really built out, I think, probably the largest ticket sales and service team in the NFL at the time and uh, and got really proactive and aggressive that and regardless of, uh, you know, what the team performance was, we were going to sell the place out and and did that and and was able to, you know, create energy and excitement with the fan base around you know, just the experience they were having, obviously the best experience is a winning football team. And we're working on that too, obviously. But I think um, at the time it was just about trying to really make this experience at this stadium special. And then once we established that, it was, you know, adding things like the Classico in 2017, when we brought in Real Madrid, Barcelona to play here and, and then adding the tennis tournament and, you know, concerts and now adding, you know, a, a Formula One Grand Prix here is uh is, is really trying to take it to the next level. I think the Super Bowl was fantastic when we had it here. Unfortunately, we had the national championship game under the pandemic, but, you know, we're able to have 13,000 here for that. And looking forward to, you know, just filling the calendar. I think, you know, 2026, for example, could be a year where we have hypothetically the national championship game, Dolphins playoff games, Miami Open tennis tournament, Formula One Grand Prix, the World Cup, uh, Dolphins and Miami Hurricanes football, and then potentially after that, maybe the Super Bowl the next year. So all that's you know not determined yet, but that could conceivably be a 13-month period that we have here. And, and I like to think that that's pretty unique uh, to any stadium environment around the world. That's kind of how you think. I don't know how many people are thinking out to 2026 in terms of what they may be hosting and how they may be able to really bring a spotlight on what you do and how you've been able to do that. I mean, that's, it's been incredible uh, how that uh, has worked and how you've been able to uh, you know, utilize Steve's resources and the resources you've developed from within. So, I mean, Tom, looking at your career, I mean, talk about two or three things that you're the most proud of that you've accomplished. Uh, thank you, Jen. Um, I think the thing I'm probably most proud of is, you know, I've, I've, I've been very fortunate, as you said, early in my career, I had a lot of great mentors around me, CEOs of companies and people that I relied on who supported me. And, and so I've tried to really be that for people myself. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of people in the industry uh, who at one time, you know, I, I worked with who are doing great things and, and big things. And so I'm most proud of them and, and the teams I've been able to build and, and the collaboration. And you know, none of this happens, you know, because of me. It happens because of the team. And we've got a great, you know, I have this thing I call people process results is sort of my operating model that I came up with where it all starts with people. And so you get the right people on board, people who are continuous learners, who accept responsibility, who 
you know, are obviously, you know, smart and, and, and collaborative and, you know, all those things. And then you get a process in place where uh, you're strategic, you're differentiated, you're what I call disciplined, but not dogmatic, you're, you know, all of these things. And then the results just come. If you get the right people in place, you get the right process in place, uh, eventually the results come. And so uh, what I'm most proud of is sort of just, you know, the people uh, that I've been lucky to work with that are, have moved on or even the people here and just watching them grow their families and their careers. And, you know, people that I hired maybe when they were 25 that are now 40, uh, you know, running businesses, you know, running sports teams or running the business side of sports teams. Uh, that part's really fun. And then I think, um, you know, just here, uh, you know, thinking back to when I got here, every once in a while you stop and I'll look at a picture of the stadium from 2013 or something. <laughs> or, or, you know, think about driving into the stadium. Uh, I remember driving into the stadium in 2013 and looking at it and then like envisioning what it would look like with the roof canopy on and what it would look like with, you know, all of this activity and actually kind of seeing it when it didn't exist and then driving up a couple of years later on the same road, sitting at the same stoplight and looking at it and it actually took place. So, you know, it's a lot of fun when you have vision for things and then they, and then seeing those things happen and, and, and come, come true later. It, that, that's, that's really what makes it fun is that creative process. Tom, you've been an incredible friend, uh, supporter, individual that has given me uh, loads of information and have helped me in my career. So I, Really appreciate you taking time coming on and visiting with our guests. So thank well, you. Thank you, Jed. Uh, likewise, you've been uh, a great supporter and friend, and I appreciate everything you've done. And, you know, it was fun back way back when meeting you through through Bob and, and you know, building yeah. relationships. So certainly, you know, appreciate you having me on. Oh, my pleasure. Well, thanks again.